been making steady progress through Colossians this year, and we've made it to chapter 3 and verse 18. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you are at Liberty Baptist Church, and we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, we believe that it is inerrant, inspired, infallible, incorruptible. And if I could think of any more other I words, I'd throw them in there. Uh, but we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and we preach through it uh, faithfully, word by word. And uh, we've been preaching through this wonderful epistle of Colossians. Today we've come to a passage on the family and the home. The title of the message today is, When Christ Rules the Home. One typical Sunday morning, me and my family were running late. That ever happened to you? Caitlin was flustered. There had been many wardrobe changes that morning. Nothing could uh, fit right. Kids were fussing and fighting. I was trying to get everybody pushed out the door. And in the hectic rush, breakfast kind of got slapped together, and I made Abigail a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for breakfast. And as I was cleaning up, she said, Daddy, I like your pretty pink tie. And she grabbed it and uh, looked at it very closely. And I wasn't paying much attention to her. I was kind of... Like I said, trying to get everybody out the door. Yeah, uh-huh, that's nice, sweetie. Thank you. Come on, let's go get dressed. Well, when we finally did make it to church, the whole time, before, during, and after, I smelled peanut butter the whole service. <laughs> and I kept thinking, where is that peanut butter coming from? Well, when I got home, I finally took my tie off, and I noticed that on the back of my tie was a big smear of peanut butter. And I'm sure that there was no telling how many of you went through the line that day and shook my hand and thought, wow, Pastor Derek must be wearing some kind of new Calvin Klein cologne or something. <laughs> Peanut butter. But oftentimes, my house is like a three-ring circus. My wife has a t-shirt that says, I run a tight shipwreck. And it's got a picture of the Titanic sinking on it. And that's true. But praise God, we're a mess, but we're God's mess, Amen. And you know that if you feel that way this morning, you're, you're not alone. You're in welcome company because none of us here today have it together in our marriage, in our family, and so on. We're a work in progress. You know, one reason why it's so difficult to raise a family these days is because we have an enemy, Satan, who has leveled his most ferocious attack against the family, against your marriage, against your kids. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He hates you. He, he hates your family. He hates this church and what we stand for. Because he knows that the basic building block of society is the family. And he knows that the quickest way to destroy a nation is to undermine that foundation. And that is to attack the family unit. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato, he said this, quote, the saga of a nation is the saga of its families writ large. And then the Christian author G.K. Chesterton, he added this. He said, quote, The business of the home is nothing less than the shaping of the bodies and souls of humanity. He said the family is the factory that manufactures mankind. And so you can see in those agreeing statements that as goes the family, so goes the rest of the state and the nation and human civilization as a whole. There was a recent nationwide study 
that was done by sociologists and psychologists and experts in the field. The title of the study or the headline said this, quote, it's harder than ever to raise a family. And if you're in that stage today, you might want to say, amen. Now, granted, we know that every generation of parents has their own challenges, but sociologists and researchers are saying that families today are facing a convergence of factors that have never been seen before. Some of those problems include two working parents, high divorce rates, school violence, social media, internet pornography, increasing drug and alcohol addiction, and the LBGTQ movement that wants to redefine human sexuality. Well, the way to save society today isn't to go to Dr. Phil or Oprah or the health section of the bookstore and find the latest from the psychologist or the guru. The way to save the family today and thus save the country today is to go back to the blueprint, to go back to God's Word. Because I'm here today to tell you this morning that marriage and child-rearing, those were God's ideas. And Father knows best. In fact, I would argue today that one reason why we see so much hell out in the streets is because there is not Christ in the home. When you take Jesus out of the picture, when you take Him out of the marriage, out of the family, friend, it all begins to fall apart. And we're seeing that today in our nation. Now, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he has shown us that Jesus is supreme over all. He's supreme over the cosmos, over the church, over the Christian. And now that trickles down to the home. Where you live and where I live, in your marriage and in your family. And in this passage, it's just four verses. But Paul gives instructions to us this morning on how each member of the family has a role and has a function. And how when we follow God's design we can have a little piece of heaven here on earth when Christ rules the home. Now what I'm going to preach to you today is controversial. What I'm going to preach to you today may be considered hate speech or primitive, old school. Uh, the universities and the experts would laugh at the advice that I'm about to give. But friend, it's tried, it's tested, it's approved by the Word of God. And if uh, your marriage isn't working out, if your family is falling apart, hey, why don't we try it God's way? So number one today, let's talk about the roles in our families, in our marriages. Paul speaks first to the wives in just one verse. Now, wives, hang on, I'm going to get to the husbands a little bit later on. But Paul's advice to the wives is to submissive loyalty. Submissive loyalty. Now, notice what he writes in verse 18. He said, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The key word there is submit. I like to use a great analogy when I talk about marriage. Marriage is like a dance. In order for two dancers to keep from stepping on each other's toes, one has to lead and one has to follow. One dancer must submit to the leadership of the other and follow in like manner. And when that happens, the dance becomes a thing of beauty, a thing of grace, a thing of enjoyment. And marriage is that sacred dance that is choreographed by God. And friend, it works 
when we do it His way. When each recognizes their role and they lovingly fulfill that. Now, the key word here that we already touched on is that word submit. And I understand that that can become a dirty word in the ears of some of our ladies today. Because Satan, as we know, has used our culture to distort its true meaning. So, let me explain to you what submission, according to the Bible, is all about in the role of marriage. But I want to begin by first telling you what it is not. Okay? Submission does not mean that the man is superior to the woman. Now, the lady said, <laughs> Amen. Submission, in fact, in marriage, is a reflection of the divine order within the Godhead. How many of you know that God exists in a community called the Trinity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we this, this same pattern is reflected in marriage, where you have Christ as the head, then you have man and you have woman in the community of marriage. Now, notice this, that in the Godhead, the Son submitted Himself to the Father's will when He died on the cross. But Jesus was not lesser than the Father, was He? He said, I and the Father are one. The Son had a different role and a different function in the community of the Trinity, and the same is true in marriage. Woman has a role, man has a role. One is not greater than the other, but they fulfill that specific design that God has given them. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says this, that women are, quote, fellow heirs of the grace of life. Fellow heirs, that means equality, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. So God created men and women different by design. And submission, in the biblical sense, recognizes that. Uh, neither is superior to the other, but they are Listen to this, complementary. The woman makes up for the deficiencies of the man, and the man makes up for the weaknesses of the woman. And when you put them together, you have a complete two becoming one flesh. I like to use this example. Think of the difference between silk and denim. Silk is weaker than denim, right? You don't make work overhauls out of silk, but silk is not inferior it's more refined, it's more elegant, it's more costly. Think about gold. Gold is weaker than steel. One is used for jewelry, the other you use to build bridges. And gold should always be protected in a safe of steel. But you notice there the differences in the design. And just so, as we looked at those building materials, there are differences in the design materials that God has used to put together the home between the husband and and the wife. So submission does not mean that the man is superior to the woman. Get that idea out of your head. Then there is this other idea that goes along with it. Submission does not mean mindlessly going along or agreeing with everything your husband says. <laughs> and all the ladies said, Amen. Man, that was kind of weak. Submission does not mean mindlessly going along or agreeing with everything your husband says. Ruth Graham the wife of Billy Graham, she said this, if two people agree on everything, then one of them is unnecessary. <laughs> now, marriage is about two becoming one. But it doesn't mean that the woman, when she takes the last name of the man, suddenly loses her ability to think for herself, to be independent, to be creative, to be nurturing, to be the person that God created her to be. She brings her strength, her wisdom, 
her nurturing, her perspective into the marriage because a lot of those things the man doesn't have. And when you put the two together, oh, it's, it's beautiful. So it doesn't mean these things that the culture has slapped on these terms. So what does biblical submission mean? Well, here's the definition that I have given it. Submission is when a woman willingly places herself under the leadership of her husband because she has first submitted to Christ. She understands the roles in marriage, the roles in the family, and she has submitted to God's design. And so a submissive woman doesn't try and take that leadership role from her husband. She doesn't try and run over him. Okay, She's willing to step back so that the man can step up and so that she can then step in and follow his leadership. So one thing that we need to understand about submission, though, is that with submission comes the power of influence. And how many of you know that the power of influence may be even greater than the position, right? The husband may be the head of the home, but as Johnny Tiller used to say, the wife is the neck, and the neck turns the head, <laughs> right? Like I heard one old boy ask another one, hey, who wears the pants in your family? And the man replied, he said, I do, but she picks them out. <laughs> I heard about a, a wealthy a Texas CEO. This, he was the owner of a big business, and he was a millionaire many times over. He pulled into a gas station to, to fill up, and he went in to pay and to use the restroom. As he came out, he noticed his wife was in a conversation with one of the gas station attendants. And as he got back in the vehicle, he heard his wife uh, talking to this gas station attendant. Oh, it was so good to see you, so good to catch up and to talk with you today. And the husband was kind of, you know, guys, we're a little bit insecure, aren't we? He was a little bit insecure at that moment. He got in, he kind of put his seatbelt on and huffed a little bit. He said, well, how, how do you know him? And she said, oh, well, when we were in school together, we used to date. They drove away down the road in complete silence. It was kind of awkward there for a minute. The man finally popped up. He said, I bet I know what you're thinking right now. She said, what? He said, I bet you were thinking how glad you were to have married me, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and not some lowly gas station attendant. And the wife, she didn't miss a beat. She said, actually, I was thinking if I would have married him, he would have been the Fortune CEO, and you would have been the gas station attendant. <laughs> Behind every good man, amen, is a good woman. And the woman makes or breaks that man. Ladies, how can you be a submissive wife? Well, here's some advice from the Word of God. Just some very simple, some very practical ways. Pray for him. Your husband is a sinner. He's weak. He's not always going to make the right decision or say the right thing or do the right thing. Pray for him because he needs it. Respect him. But Ephesians says that to uh, wives, respect your husbands. That means don't talk him down in public. Don't insult him. Don't put him down. Lift him up. Build him up. Encourage him. When he does something good, praise him. Don't nag him. Guys are, are, are fed on compliments and they love to hear their woman talk good about them. Care for his needs. Make the home a haven. Make the home a place where he wants to come and be nurtured and a place where he feels like he can be charged up and refreshed. Look beautiful for him. Help him in every way to be a success. Okay, so that's the advice to the wives who have submissive loyalty.
Now I can wipe the sweat from my brow because I was really sweating that part about talking to the women. Now I get to preach to the men. Paul always has a whole lot more to say to the men than he does to the women because guys, we're the head, we're the leader, we're God's priest of the home, we've got more responsibility, so it's on us. So what's his advice to the husbands? Number two, if the woman is to have submissive loyalty, he's to have sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Paul writes in verse 19, Husbands, love and do not be harsh with them. Now, God has designed the man to take the role of headship in the family. But listen to me. Headship doesn't mean dictatorship. Headship in the marriage means Christ-like leadership. Now, that word for love that he uses there in verse 19 is the highest form of love. It's agape-type love. It's sacrificing love. It's the love of Jesus that when he went to the cross, died for the sins of the world. There's a parallel passage over in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Man, I don't care how good a man you are, how hard a worker, how much money you make, how good of a provider you are, how much of a tough guy you are. You read Ephesians 5.25, there's no man on earth that can live up to that. I don't have it within my flesh, within my ability to love my wife the way that Christ loved the church, but that's my calling. And you know what that means? If I can't do it in my own strength, I need God's strength to do it. I need to bow my knee to Him every day and ask God to help me. God, help me to be the man that you called me to be. To love my wife more than on the day I said I do. Because I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I'm selfish. And buddy, I didn't realize how selfish I was until I did get married. And then the beauty and the submission of my wife revealed to me, hey buddy, you got a lot to work on. I love what the Puritan preacher Matthew Henry said about this. He said, quote, The woman was made out of a rib from the side of Adam not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side, listen, to be under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Amen? That's the duty and the privilege of a husband's call. It's, listen men, to die for your wife, to put her first, to sacrifice, to do whatever it takes to serve her in a biblical and in a Jesus-type way. And I guarantee you, if you have a man who is striving to do that, striving to be Jesus to the wife, the wife will have very little trouble submitting to the leadership of a man like that. Because it's, it's not about him uh, putting his foot down and it's my way or the highway. No, it's, honey, how can I serve you today? How can I love you as Jesus did? So what does sacrificial love look like, men? It looks like this. It means getting up and helping her clean the house when you'd rather sit and watch the ball game. Amen? <laughs> I've been there. It means watching the kids and giving her a night out to go be with friends and, and go do something that she likes to do. It means taking her car out and vacuuming all the nasty dirt and, and stuff out of her car because she doesn't like to do that and go filling it up with gas and make sure that everything's taken care of that. It's showing up one day with flowers, not because you're in trouble, but because you love her and you want her to know, hey, you're the love of my life. If it weren't for Jesus and if it wasn't for you, I'd be nobody. And sometimes, 
especially in my house, sacrificial love means letting your wife put her cold feet on you. <laughs> and without fail, I get in bed at night, I'm halfway asleep, boom, there come those cold feet on the small of my back. Yikes! Want to come up out of bed. That's love, right? <laughs> when you let your wife put her cold feet on you. Amen? Men think that love happens in the bedroom, but you know what? You'll find out, according to your wife, it starts in the kitchen. It starts in the garage. It starts where you serve her around the house. That's what actually makes the man more attractive and more Jesus-like, more humble. Now, along with sacrifice, there are some other important dynamics to the husband's love. There is what I would call sensitive love. Sensitive love. Notice the last half of the verse here in verse 19. He says, and do not be harsh with them. Now, guys, let's face it. Let's own up to it. We can be very insensitive to the needs of our wives. And we cannot even realize how much of a jerk we might be at that moment when we snap back at her. And how many of you guys know it's not necessarily what you say that's that important. It's how you say it. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know what I'm saying? For example, don't do what I did. You can learn just as much from a good example as you can from a bad example. Don't do what I did. One day earlier on in our marriage, I came home, and it looked like a Category 5 hurricane had just blown through our house. Toys everywhere. Dinner looked like it was about to boil up on the stove. One child was crying. She had another child on the hip. I walked in. This is how stupid I was. I walked in, I surveyed the scene. I said, wow, looks like a bomb went off in this place. What have you been doing all day? Oh. You ever wish you could just press the rerun button sometimes in your life? Let me have a do-over. Let me walk back out the door and try that again. The look that I got, some of you, all you know is the sweet side. But I'm telling you, there's a bear underneath all that. It's kind of like the, the story of the old boy that showed up at work one Monday morning. He had a black eye, and the co-worker asked him, said, what happened to your eye? He said, it's my wife and my stove wood, none of your business. You know what I mean? My papa, he used to joke, he used to always say, now, son, here's a little piece of advice for you. He said, when you get home, he said, take your hat off and throw it in the door. He said, wait a second, if the hat comes back out, don't go in, go find somewhere else to be. But Proverbs 15.1, guys, memorize it. You'll need it. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Soft words. That's called sensitive love, but then there's also sentimental love. Yes, this is the romantic part of the message. Ephesians 5.28-29, look at what the Bible says there. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as Christ does the church. Men, we're to nourish our wives. How do we do that? With words of affirmation. Tell her how lovely she is. Tell her how beautiful she is. Tell her how much she captures your heart. A gentle touch. A kind note. A small gift. Quality time. Find out what your wife's love language is and begin to speak that into her life, and you will see her flourish. You'll see a marriage on the rocks change into a marriage established on the rock, Jesus Christ. 
Because, guys, when it comes to romance, when it comes to sentimental and uh, this kind of love that I'm talking about, we're the thermostat. Women are the thermometer. We set the tone. So study her. Discover your wife's love language. Fill her cup up every day. Kind of like the story that I once heard about an old married couple who was sitting out on the front porch in their rocking chairs. Grandma turned to Grandpa. She said, Honey, do you remember how when we were young, you'd hold my hand? Grandpa didn't say anything. He just reached his hand over, wrapped his hand around hers. Grandma then said, And honey, do you remember how you used to kiss me? Grandpa didn't say anything. He just leaned over, put a little tender peck on her cheek. And then she said, And do you remember also when we were young and in love, you used to nibble on my ear and and tell me sweet things? Grandpa didn't say anything. He stood up and started to walk away. She said, Hey, where are you going? He said, I'm going in to get my teeth. (laughs) Going in to get my teeth. Hey, guys, you still have to pursue the heart of your woman. You've never arrived, no matter how long you've been married together. She still needs to hear I love you. You still need to date her. Pursue her. Sentimental love. Sensitive love. How about this last one? Sanctifying love. Sanctifying love. Again, Ephesians 5 gives us another marriage nugget. Look at what it says. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We looked at that. But then look at verse 26. That he may sanctify her, that he may sanctify her by having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This is the hard part. My chief assignment from God to my wife is to have her be more radiant, a more beautiful and grounded follower of Jesus Christ. Men, is your wife a more godly wife because of your leadership in the home or not? Are we praying with our wives? Are we worshiping Christ together? Are we leading our wives spiritually? Or are we taking a step back and letting them do everything? That's not what God has called us to do, guys. God has called us as men to be the leaders in the home. Many of you remember reading Billy Graham's answer column. It used to be printed every day in the newspaper. One day a man wrote in and he asked the question. He said, what's the secret to a great marriage? Billy Graham gave a brilliant answer. He answered by giving the four C's of marriage. And I wrote this down. I kept this with me. This was so good. I share it with you today. The four C's of marriage. Cherish. He said to the man, express your love both in words with little acts of kindness and thoughtfulness, a surprise gift, a special time away, a favorite dinner. Cherish your wife and let her know how important she is. Then he said this, communication. Talk to each other about anything and everything. That's one I'm working on. Then he also talked about the next C, compromise. Love does not always demand its own way, according to 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. And the last one is C, Christ. And he said that if couples will pray together and read the Scriptures together, they will stay together. Isn't that great advice? Cherish, communicate, compromise, and Christ. Well, that's the advice to the husbands, have sacrificial love. That's the advice to the wives, submissive loyalty. And then he moves on to the children. So young people, if you're still living at home, 
This is for you. He talks to the children, number three, about simple obedience. Simple obedience. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, if you can read a similar passage like this over in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. And in that passage, Paul connects the obedience of the child to Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother so that your days on the earth may be long. And what he's talking about there is how that the blessing of obedience in the life of the child means that he will save himself or herself by not getting into the pain and the heartache that comes with sin. How many of you made that mistake and you realize daddy was a lot smarter than I thought he was? Mama was right after all. Well, learning obedience early in the home is vital. Because listen, if we don't teach our children authority and obedience in the home, they won't accept it anywhere else. They won't get it at school. They won't get it on the playing field. And they won't get it from our police. How many of you watched all that madness last year? In 2020, where it was riot after riot. Young people, 20-something year old, some of them maybe even older than that, out in the streets, burning the world down, throwing down on people's businesses, smashing windows, attacking police, how many of you stood up in the middle of all that and just wanted to shout at your TV and say, somebody grab that young person up and jerk a knot in their tail? That is evidence of a culture where dad wasn't present, where mom did all she could, but there wasn't great discipline in the home. And friend, when they don't learn discipline in the home, that's why there's hell in the street. I know that's not popular, but that's the truth and that's biblical. There's some, even some 20, 30, 40, 50 year olds who need to have the Board of Education applied to the seat of understanding. Some discipline needs to be involved here. In fact, Romans 1.30 points out, Paul says there that the breakdown of the moral fabric of a nation begins when the children no longer have respect for the parents. He says in Romans 1.30, they'll be slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I think we're there. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.2 that one of the indicators of the end times will be lawlessness in the last days. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Are we there? Amen. Martin Luther, the great Reformation leader, he said this. He said, quote, What is a city but a collection of houses where if and let children have their own way, then neither city nor village nor town nor kingdom nor empire can be effectively governed. Wasn't he right about that? I don't have to name any names, but you've probably been in the store the Dollar General or the Walmart, or you've been out at the ball field or in public, and you can see that the parents are being run by the children. The children pop off and say things back to mom and dad that if I would have said it, I'd be six feet under today. Right? Parents, the responsibility is on us to enforce 
the rules in the home. Respect, love, discipline. And children have to obey. Now, training in obedience begins with parents early. Listen to what Proverbs 13 and verse 24 says. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. How many of you had a mom or a daddy who loved you a lot? Amen. Maybe their choice for you was a belt. Maybe it was a switch. Wasn't that the worst when you had to go pick out your own switch? And you better not bring back a bad one. Because that meant you have to go back. She'd go out and pick one out. Get that young limber one that would just really light you up in the back. And you do that dance. You know what I'm talking about? One of the worst spankings I ever got was on Sunday morning because I wasn't paying attention in church. My dad will tell you the truth. I don't really remember what all entailed about that, but dad had had enough, and he blew his stack, and I can remember dad grabbing me up from the pew, and I held on to the edge of that pew like some of you do during invitation time. No, daddy! No, daddy! Daddy, I won't do it again! Amen, dad? Amen. I'm telling you what, we had a come-to-Jesus meeting in the men's restroom. There wasn't no more disrespecting the man of God on Sunday morning. But I'm thankful for that, amen? I'm thankful that I had a daddy in my life who loved me enough to put the law down and let me know that, hey, some things aren't acceptable. So we need that. Listen to what it said. It's been said... Children are like canoes. They are more easily controlled if they are paddled from the rear. Now, I know some of you may be against the whole capital punishment thing. I don't know what that's going to look like in your home. I know what it looks like in my home and how I was raised. On top of our refrigerator, we have a really one of those long paint sticks from Home Depot. Not the little flimsy ones. I'm talking about the long ones, the thicker ones. I have had to use it very rarely, very rarely. But it is a great attitude adjuster. And I can pull that thing down from the refrigerator and tap it against the table and let them know that, hey, it's time, I mean business. And attitudes change just like that. Yes, sir, Dad, what do you want me to do? It works. And it does a good thing in the long run for the life of the child. It won't destroy the child. So how do we discipline? Well, five real quick, easy things. Just going to go rifle-like, machine-gun-like down this list. Discipline early. It's much easier to mold wet cement than it is when it's had time to harden. Amen? The longer a parent waits to discipline, the harder it is to mold the child. Discipline immediately. As soon as the child knows what they have done wrong, administer correction while it's fresh on their mind, and they know what they've done wrong. The worst, I tell you, the worst punishments from mom and dad were the ones where they sent you to your room. Go to your room and wait for your daddy to get home. Oh, gosh. Putting on multiple pairs of underwear and shorts, right? Soften the blow a little bit. Discipline immediately. Discipline consistently. Parental standards can't change from one day to the next. And both mom and dad have to be agreement. Or else you'll have one child playing one parent against the other. You know how it goes. Discipline patiently. Some kids, 
You can spank them one time and they get it. Some kids, it doesn't matter how many times you discipline them, they still don't get it. And so you have to find what works for each child. A child may respond better by depriving them of a privilege. Take away that tablet. Take away that cell phone. Take away that iPad or that video game. And others get it very easily, but don't give up. It's hard, but you've got to dare to discipline. And then discipline lovingly, always with love. That's what verse 21 is about. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You're not there to crush the child. You're there to guide them, to direct them. I'm telling you, one of the hardest moments in dad life is when you have to apologize to your children because you haven't handled discipline the way that it should have been handled. You have to apologize to your son or your daughter. Daddy got angry. Daddy said something he should have said. But discipline lovingly. Every time we discipline our kids, I always wrap them up in my arms. I kiss them, I hug them, and I tell them, I love you. And I don't care what you do or how many times you do it, I'm still going to love you at the end of the day. But there's rules, amen? Whenever I think about loving a child through discipline, I think about the story that Cliff Barrows tells. Cliff Barrows is, used to be the longtime music director for Billy Graham when they were doing their evangelistic crusades and of course, Cliff Bears has gone on to be with the Lord, but he used to tell the greatest story about one day when he came home and he found that his kids had really given Mom a hard time that day. And Miss Barrows was just in tears. They had to be punished. They were waiting in the room. Cliff Barrows said that when he got in there, he was really sick because he was just lost at the thought of having to jerk his belt off and spank his kids because it was really going to hurt him. Loving father can understand that dilemma. Here's what he said he did. He said, I called them into my room. I took off my belt. And then I took off my shirt. He said, with a bare back, I knelt down over the bed. From then, I made the statement. I handed them the belt. Each of you are to strap daddy ten times apiece. He said, you should have heard the crying in that house not from me but from them they didn't want to do it but I told them the penalty had to be paid and so through sobs and tears they swung that belt like a wet noodle at daddy he said this I smile when I remember the incident but I must admit I only had to do it one time it was a once and for all sacrifice, you might say. I guess you might say they got the point. And then he makes this application. He said, we kissed and we made up. And when it was over, I told them I loved them. And then I told them, and this is what Jesus did for you and for me. Jesus stepped in and took our discipline, took our wrath, that we deserve from God the Father. He stepped in on the cross. He died in our place. And the Bible says by His stripes, by His wounds, we are healed. And so I'm wondering today as our musicians are coming, I don't know what it's like in your home, but as I read that passage, I know I've, I've got things I need to work on. And I need Christ 
in my marriage. I need Christ every day to make me the man that God's called me to be, to make me a better daddy. And so if, if you need that today, you can come forward, and I'd love to pray with you, or, or maybe you need to repent of something in your life. Guys, men, have, have you really been the spiritual leader in your home? Women, are there things in your life that the Holy Spirit pointed out to you today? You know what? I need, I need to submit. I need to do what the Bible says. Hey, you can get it right today. Jesus is a, a God of grace and mercy. You know what? If you don't know Christ, you can't even really understand or have this kind of home. He has to be number one. He has to be king in your life. You can come today if you don't know Christ and you can repent of your sin. You can trust in Him and He can make the difference today.